Today, uh, we are going to be, like I said, talking about our value of partnership. And so I just want to give you just a really brief history of our partnerships. Rooted began by, like, our very origin story of Rooted originally was two churches that decided partnering together would make them more, that would, would better reflect the gospel to a local community. We partner as a church with other churches throughout the state, through the Missouri Baptist Convention, and throughout the world through the Acts 29 network. We partner with the other churches in the Royal Heights neighborhood uh, when, when there's not a pandemic for the purpose of serving and loving the neighborhood where our building resides. We partner each month. We, have a, we meet with uh, churches like College Heights and Christ Church of Joplin. Uh, the, our pastoral teams meet each month to talk about how we could partner together in planting churches here in this region. Over the last couple of years, we've partnered with Lafayette House, Watered Gardens, Children's Center, and on a regular basis, Crosslines, for the purpose of partnering with those whom God has put in specific places to meet specific needs in our community. And not only do we take part in partnerships, but we, help, we have felt convicted from the beginning to help facilitate new partnerships. So we are working currently, but April was supposed to be our first meeting for a new kind of regional meeting called Acts 29 Ozarks, where the churches from Springfield, Tulsa, Northwest Arkansas would meet on a quarterly basis. And our building is going to be used for that. That's been delayed because of COVID, but that's a way we want to facilitate partnership in the region. And then we facilitate, we, we sponsor, a monthly networking meeting called Wednesdays at the Tables, where pastors of churches who are planting, replanting, or revitalizing can come together and just share and seek encouragement. I say all of this to say that partnership is something, when I say that's a value, that's not just a word on a page, that is something from day one we have fought for and felt was a unique part of our calling as a church. All of this is born from the conviction that God designed the local church to partner together. And perhaps nowhere in scripture do we see that more clearly than in the life of Paul. And so this morning, uh, I want to just, I want to start by just looking at 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 58 once again. And I want to consider the context of the exclamation that Paul shares. So first, I just, I want to pray and then uh, let's dive into that. Father, thank you for this day and for these people that, uh, that we just have the great honor and privilege of coming together and singing songs to you and letting your word just do its work in us. God, I, I ask that of you today. Holy Spirit, we invite you. Would you just, would you do work in us? Would you transform our hearts? Would you chip away at that which is broken? Would you, would you restore that which is weary? Holy Spirit, would you work in us? turn our gaze to you through the power of your word this morning. Would you hide me behind your cross and would be the, the truth of the gospel just preempt, be preeminent over all else in our life this day. And I ask these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Tom started off this morning by reading a familiar phrase, a, a verse that you have heard probably time and time again. Verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Paul rejoices in the truth that death is a defeated enemy because of Christ. This chorus from Hosea declares that death has no power over the person that is found in Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon on this text once said it this way, I will not fear thee, death. Why should I? 
thou lookest like a dragon, but thy sting is gone. Thy teeth are broken. O old lion, wherefore should I fear thee? I know thou art no more able to destroy me, but thou art sent as a messenger to conduct me to the golden gate wherein I shall enter and see my Savior's unveiled face forever. Expiring saints have oft said that their last beds have been the best they have ever slept on. Surely this is the posture from which Paul makes this celebratory exclamation in this verse. And then in 56, he says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Make no mistake, for those who do not belong to Christ, death still has a significant sting. And that sting is called sin. Sin is the offense that must be accounted for before a perfectly holy God. Not only a perfectly loving God, but a perfectly holy God, a perfectly just God that demands perfect justice. And this perfect justice is not some vague idea. Perfect justice is displayed through the law of God, the very law that David says he rejoices in and meditates on. Perfect justice is displayed through this law, but sin has power over us because it is the very disease that prevents us from obtaining such a holy mark, a mark that is defined by the law. Sin prevents us from being able to keep the commands of God, the law of God, and instead we constantly are turned back inwardly, which is the very nature of sin itself. But Paul shares the good news. He says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory, that God gives us the perfect vaccine for this disease in Christ, who fulfilled the law perfectly to a T. We could not, but he did it in such a way perfectly that now his record of righteousness is counted on our behalf. Holiness is revealed in the quality and God that cares about our sin, and in the capacity He alone has to do something about it. And the holiness of, of God, we see that He not only cares for us, being perfectly loving, but He alone has the capacity to do something about the offense, maintaining His perfect justice. And so Paul declares this glorious good news to the church. And we echo this verse that he shares regularly each Easter. You know, it's not uncommon. Death, where is your victory? We've shared this numerous times in a variety of circumstances, declaring this glorious gospel truth. However, we rarely acknowledge the unique context that brings forth this celebratory exclamation. And that's what I want to talk about today. In verse 58, Paul goes on to say this. Therefore, so he's saying, because of the gospel, he just shared the good news. Because of the gospel, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. When we think about the Apostle Paul, we often think about his rich, deep, meaningful theological letters. His dramatic testimony of grace and even the churches which he planted. However, if we dive deeper into the life of Paul, 
we find something else. If we pay attention to the little hints in his letters, we find that Paul had a very specific vision for the church that he devoted his life to. In his first 10 years of ministry, Paul devoted most of his time, energy, and focus to forming a partnership amongst the Gentile churches in order to support the struggling Christians in Jerusalem. Paul encourages the church that their labor is not in vain, and then he immediately transitions to 16.1, which defines the very labor he is encouraging them in. Like, it's a general encouragement in labor, but he also is very specifically talking about something. In 16.1, he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. Paul is passionate about this partnership among the churches. He talks about it all the time. He references this collection for the church in Jerusalem time and time again throughout the Corinthian letters. It's a huge part of the book of Acts. He talks about it in Romans. Paul's life is like one of just the the premier treasures of his life is this mission that he's been called to to raise up this collection for the church in Jerusalem. Last week, Alex preached on generosity from, first, from 2 Corinthians 8. And that text is in reference to this very partnership. I want to point out three things today that we learn about partnership in the first five verses of that text. And additionally, I want to share with you three prayers I have for Rooted Church in that regard. So turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. One of the first things we learn in verse 1, is that together the grace of God is revealed in our partnership. It says in verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given amongst the churches of Macedonia. Speaking of the churches of Macedonia, he's speaking of the northern part of Greece, which was called Macedonia. The southern part was called Achaia. And in the city of Corinth was this region in Achaia that he's writing to to tell about what's happening amongst the churches of Macedonia. Paul writes about the example that he sees in the Macedonian church. And Paul shows here in verse 1, he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given amongst the churches of Macedonia. Paul shows that he considers both the opportunity and the willingness to give and partner to be a gift from the Lord. Both the opportunity that they have been given to serve and to reflect the gospel in their service and in their generosity and the spirit-empowered willingness to do it are gifts of the Lord. For these churches, God's invitation to partner together for the sake of kingdom impact and the Spirit's power in leading them to do so willingly testified of the very grace of God. Next month, we're going to be preaching through the scriptures that define the mission of Rooted Church. Last month, we talked about our identity being that of we are a family of missionary disciples because of Jesus. And this last month and next week, we're going to finish talking about our values because of who we are, how do we live. And then in August, we're going to be talking about our mission. That we desire to create a movement of making disciples, mobilizing missionaries, and multiplying churches to the glory of God. And the first M in that mission statement 
can seem can be one that kind of slips by and maybe is easy to not notice, but it's kind of a peculiar word, and it's the word movement. Next month, I want to talk more about that word, but in short, there are some key differences between the desire to create a movement versus an institution. And Rooted began with the desire for the former. And Tim Keller speaks of this a great deal, these comparisons in his book, Center Church. But I want to share just a couple of those with you. Movements make the what the accomplishment of the mission. And that means that the what becomes of a higher value than the who or the how. That for those called, when, when, when you are part of something bigger than yourself, bigger than just an institution or, or an individual organization, then the what that God has called us to is of preeminent importance. The who, the how, God can do what he wills in that. But the ultimate aim is the what. In, the, in a movement, the vision encourages sacrifice. And members of movements are willing to make allies and will cooperate with anyone who shares the vision. And by contrast, an institution is committed to inherent practices, right procedures, and making sure the right person or peoples get the credit for what takes place. It is not uncommon for an institution to choose not to achieve a result, even if they strongly desire the result, if it can't be done in the prescribed way, and if the proper people don't get the credit for it. Now, I'm not here to, to speak against institutions, but I'm saying that I believe there is a very different posture. That term movement is there for a reason, because our desire is a what? We desire to see disciples made. We desire to see missionaries mobilized in the places where God's called them to, and we desire to see churches multiplied to the glory of God. The who? The how he chooses to do that, we recognize that to be a bigger question than we can answer. And we hope that that includes not, that that's not just an isolated thing that Root is a part of, but it's something, a part of God's larger story amongst his local church in our community. The churches in Macedonia and Paul himself we're not interested in starting individual institutions that were worried about what their name could be on and what they could get credit for. Instead, they were about something bigger. That's why like the churches that Paul started in that original form aren't even there anymore. And that's okay because that way they were part of God's story. They were there to serve a season. Like every church has a start date and an end date. Every local church does, but Big C Church, no, the gates of hell won't overthrow it. This is what it means to be a part of a movement versus just an individual institution. God has called us to something collectively bigger, and that takes place in the midst of his broader mission of his local church. And so my prayer for Rooted in this regard is that God would use Rooted Church to create a movement of kingdom expansion in our region and beyond. And that this movement wouldn't be limited solely to our body or centered around our preferences, but that we would aid the mission of the broader church and that we would be an ally to anyone who preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only is God, the grace of God put on display through our partnership together, but verses two and three tell us that together our size does not 
determine our kingdom impact. It says this in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 8. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. When Paul delivers the gifts to the church in Jerusalem, he does so accompanied by a variety of representatives amongst all of the regions where he had helped to plant churches. And in Romans 15, he refers to this partnership as the seal and the fruit of his entire ministry. Yet it's important to consider what churches God used to spark this movement of grace and mercy. Kind of what he explains here in this verse. Paul reports to the Corinthian Christians, the example of the Macedonian Christians, they were significantly impoverished, yet they still gave generously. They didn't have as much as some, yet they did not forsake making giving to the Lord an ultimate priority in their life as a reflection of all they had been given in Christ. The church in the region had experienced a great deal of loss, and they were not as prosperous as others. The Romans had took most of their wealth when they conquered the homeland of Alexander the Great. Yet Paul tells the church in Corinth that the Macedonians gave in two ways. He says they gave according to their ability, Their gift was not a large gift in total dollar sense, yet it was sacrificial, and it was in partnership with other faithful churches who were equally committed to generosity through the gospel. And secondly, since their heart was freely willing to give, and they gave in proportion to the little they had, they actually gave beyond their ability. My prayer for Rooted today. Would God lead us to give graciously? And would our humble gifts combined with those of other churches lead to kingdom expansion in our region? Specifically, would the Lord use Rooted to partner with other churches to plant new ones? Would we be a people praying and desiring to that end? I'm just going to be, I'll just be really specific with you on that. I didn't know if I was going to be, but, but I will. Man, we've, we've been meeting every uh, month for probably seven or eight months now, and talking about what it would look like to plant churches in our region. And I'm just going to share with you, like, for probably the better part of 10 years, the first time I ever uh, pursued partnership with Acts 29, I almost completed the process, and that got interrupted by a tornado, and it turned out God had other plans. But I started that process with a heart to see a church planted in Pittsburgh, Kansas, and it's one of the most unchurched cities in our, our region. When you look at that city size-wise and the number of churches can make considered to our whole region, it's comparable to the worst parts of our most major metro areas. I have all the data. I have spent a significant amount of time researching this. And I'll just be honest. Like we've, I've been talking a lot here lately. Like I know, you know we're, we're limited in what we could do by ourselves, but if God brings churches together, what would it, like, I, I'm praying that God would use us, that we'd get to be a part of helping to start a church in Pittsburgh and in re, and, and the areas that need churches all throughout this region. Make no mistake, the landscape of the local church will look differently post-COVID in our community, just like it looked significantly different just a couple years removed from the tornado in 2011. That will come 
gospel-centered churches are needed now and will be needed more than ever in the coming years. Would we pray that through partnership, we might have the opportunity to take part in the miraculous work of multiplying churches? Lastly, closing this morning, I want to share one last thing. Together, when we partner together, God prepares us for the kingdom that is to come. In verse 4 and 5, it says this. He says this of the Macedonians who were deeply impoverished. They were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. The Macedonian Christians did not have much to give. Yet they saw it as a privilege to give and to take part in the work. Paul says that they begged him to take part in this kingdom partnership. In Philip Hughes' commentary on 2 Corinthians, he says the example of the Macedonians is practical proof that true generosity is not the prerogative of those who enjoy inadequacy of means. The most genuine generosity is frequently displayed by those who have the least to give. Christian giving is estimated in terms not of quantity, but of sacrifice. Paul says they gave not as we had hoped. The Macedonian Christians gave far beyond what Paul had hoped for. And what made their giving so spectacular wasn't the dollar amount. It was that they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. The giving was not only generous, but it was gracious. It was an act of worship. The church accomplished more than Paul could have imagined because the transformation of these people led them not only to give generously, as Alex talked about last Sunday, but they give themselves to others and to partner with Paul and these other churches to see this greater mission fulfilled. The mission was about Jesus, not who got the credit for it. Why were the Macedonians such good examples of giving? Why were they so willing to partner even in the midst of differences that they might have had with others? It's because they first gave themselves to the Lord and he led them to be a part of something that reflected the kingdom. When a church seeks to function as a business, to expand its own empire, it may well appeal to customers who are drawn to its product, but it doesn't appeal to the world. They're familiar with business. Yet when a church desires to be part of a movement, when its own well-being is set aside for the broader mission, this is something otherworldly. This reflects the kingdom to come. This leads the world to ask questions and to us being able to answer with the truth of the gospel. And the church in Macedonia knew nothing of competing churches. They were part of a something larger. In the kingdom, there will be no jockeying for position, but a united longing to gaze on the face of Christ. The petty things that separate us now, that cause us to draw lines, that keep us from working together, that keep, make us want to be about whatever we can put our name on, we won't even be able to remember that in the kingdom of God. It'll be such a foreign concept as we look upon the glory of Christ. In giving or in partnership, the real issue isn't about money or time or power. It's about 
first giving ourselves to the Lord. Like, I just want to lean into you on that today. Are you first and foremost giving yourself to the Lord? Because when we do, he leads us to partner to be a part of, part of something bigger. I want to just end this morning with my final, my third prayer for Rooted. Would the Lord supply all we need as we faithfully pursue him? Would we lay down our lives for Jesus and thus his church so that the world might see a reflection of the kingdom in us? Lord, do not grow our body with Christian consumers looking for a better product, but by broken sinners captivated by a vision for the kingdom of God. Would you pray with me to that end this morning? Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for these people. Thank you for the gospel. God, I pray that, I beg you, that we might be a people who give ourselves first, firstly to you. God, we are so good at talking about these things. We know the right things to say. We know the right things to retweet, to share on Facebook. We know the, the, all the right things. And it is so easy to hide just a, a detachment from you. Um, it's so easy to hide uh, just an independence um, that is, is absolutely uh, naive to our dependence. Holy Spirit, I beg you, to not let these things reside among us? Would we be a people who are broken before you and bring our brokenness to you and acknowledge your magnificence and your, your, your just incredible gospel as our only hope in life and in death? Lord, would we give all of ourselves to you? Not to our careers, not to our community, not even to our home first, but would we give all of ourselves to you firstly? And then Holy Spirit, would you lead us in how you have us to steward those things in these other places you've put us here temporarily? God, would we give all to you first? Holy Spirit, would you make us both willing and would you present us these opportunities to take part and the expansion of the kingdom here in this place. God, I pray, I ask you that you might grow us in our, our generosity and that you might take our generosity and give us opportunities to partner with other churches. Would we, might, would we not see ourselves as just merely a new church or a small church, but we are a part of the broader church. We are a part of the local church here in this community. And would you give us opportunities to partner together and whatever way makes the greatest impact for the kingdom. Give us wisdom to discern such things continuously that you might receive the most glory. Lord, take away any desire we have for personal glory, and would we desire you to be made much of above all else. Lord, would you make this so in us? Lord, I do 
Would you plant, would you use us to start new gospel communities? Would we be a spark that, that helps lead uh, to even something bigger than ourselves? I love you. I ask these things in the good name of Jesus. Amen. At this time this morning, we come to the communion table and we remember the gospel. We remember that which we are ultimately a part of, that because of Jesus, we are, we are no longer just individuals. We're not just a, an institution. No, we've been made a part of a family. We've been made daughters and sons of the kingdom of God. That this world in the midst of monotony, in the midst of pandemic, in the midst of so much confusion, and, and the days seem long, sometimes they feel sad, but this is not the end for us. We are part of something larger. We're a part of the kingdom of God. We come to the communion table acknowledging this, remembering where our hope lies. <laughs> Sweet Eli came to me this morning and he asked me, is this God's blood? And he held up the little cup. And we, we talked about, no, it's, it's not God's blood, it's grape juice. But we remember God's blood. We remember that his blood was poured out, that our record of lawlessness might be blotted out. And instead, it is covered with and replaced by the perfect righteousness, the perfect record of Jesus who kept the law perfectly in line with the very holy nature of God. And so because of, of Jesus, we come to the table and we come without shame. We come with celebration. Communion is a celebratory meal for those who have been given hope in the gospel. And so if you are in Christ this morning, I invite you to come and partake. If Jesus is not your ultimate hope, if you've not given your life to him, don't worry about communion. Communion's not for you, but Jesus is. And I'd much rather just tell you about Jesus this morning. So Christian, when you're ready, come and partake.